The Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Land Trust. Did you know sportsmen spend over $5 billion annually in hunter and angler access fees? Land Trust is a platform that connects sportsmen with farmers and ranchers like you who have untapped profits just by providing access to their land. Go to landtrust.com slash BOA, as in business of agriculture, to see how much you might add to your bottom line. Greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason. Remember, you can find this anywhere you get your audio podcast, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. You can go to DamianMason.com and find it there. But I also want to remind you that for the last almost two years now, we have been recording this on a video and releasing it on YouTube. Please go to Damian Mason channel. It's just go into YouTube and type in Damian Mason channel and hit subscribe. It'll really help me get more visibility and more people can see great information like you're going to see here on this episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. We're talking about the United Nations and climate alarmism and how agriculture gets blamed. And then we're going to talk about the things that agriculture can and is doing that we should be telling all of our customers we are doing because we are not this evil, terrible thing called the people, the, the, the organization, the industry, I'm sorry, that's causing climate change. I got Todd Thurman. He is my buddy and his mom likes him more than me. He's always on my podcast. And then his mom says, oh, you do great, little Toddy. You do great, little Toddy. But that Damien's full of himself. So you know what, Mrs. Thurman? Stick that in your pipe and smoke it because I know you're going to be watching this. Todd Thurman's a brilliant dude. He's my partner also on the Business of Agriculture Success Group. Todd Thurman and I put on uh, a couple, two or three times per month. We get agricultural professionals together on a Zoom call and we have guest presenters and we talk about issues of the day impacting ag. So if you enjoy this podcast and you want to strengthen yourself, find a network of other ag professionals that can help you know what's going on, you might consider joining the Business of Agriculture Success Groups. You can hear from me and Todd every month. It's only $99. And I mean, you'll get that much out of just one of the meetings, let alone there's two and sometimes three per month. Todd Thurman, welcome to the Business of Agriculture. Thank you, sir. When you share this with your mom, you, you'll know that she listened to it or doesn't listen to it because of the very opening right there, won't you? Exactly. And then go ahead, just for our, just for the fun, before we get on this topic here about the environment, the United Nations uh, report and agriculture being blamed. What did your mom say that I was full of myself? And then what did your dad say? Well, my dad said that he thought most showbiz people were like that. So <laughs> I, I think that was sort of a backhanded compliment. I'm not quite <laughs> sure, but um, I think it's probably like most things. My dad doesn't really care a whole lot about much of anything unless it involves fishing. <laughs> oh my mercy yes all showbiz people are like that i think that's funny and uh um let's talk about this thing uh you know todd and i keep up all the time he's very active on linkedin if you don't if you have if you have heard from todd go ahead and find him on linkedin he puts really good information uh out there it was uh, august 9th that this uh, story came out and it's from the, this is the Wall Street article, but some climate change effects may be irreversible, uh, according to the UN panel. And I read this and then, oh, man, did social media blow up? They're all going to die. And then some of the media, which perpetuates fear because fear, the base level human emotion that it is, does get a lot of eyeballs. A lot of people tune into the fear show. And one article, even in like Reuters, I think it was, said that we've got we're a situation where if you go outside, you might die. 
And I'm thinking, good God almighty. And I live in Arizona part of the year where there's days you think it's 117. If I go outside, I could die, but it's really not, really not that you're going to die. And also it's a little bit of alarmism. But usually when the UN comes out with their thing, it tends to have a pretty negative connotation as it pertains to agriculture. So I want to set that whole thing up because Todd and I have been seeing these reports for a long time. And we want to talk about what they do, the information they get wrong. And then we're going to talk about what things we are doing and can do more of in agriculture. Did you read any articles about the UN report, Todd? I did. Okay. This one didn't, and I haven't gone and read the whole, you know, 14,000 peer reviewed studies. Generally they blame agriculture and talk about, uh, livestock, and they talk about deforestation. In the United States of America, this is where they get it wrong. In the United States of America, Canada, Western Europe, essentially Australia, all of the developed nations where we're really good at agriculture, we haven't been deforesting for over one century. Give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, and really it's about, in fact, it's almost the opposite. It's about utilizing land that doesn't have much of an applicable use otherwise. So I think it's a big mistake that people from outside of agriculture tend to make. And there's a bunch of them. I've been working on a list of those mistakes that that, that people outside of agriculture make about, uh, about agriculture. But one of those is they assumed all land is the same, right? And yeah. that if you quit producing corn, you can just grow uh, watermelons on that same land, or if you uh, quit grazing cattle, you can just grow wheat on that same land, and that's not always the case. In fact, in most cases, that's that's not the case. The fact that you do graze animals on that land is is because there's not really anything else you can do, you know, that's going to be profitable uh, with that land, and so it's really utilizing, you know, what we refer to as marginal. Uh, land in terms of agriculture applications. So, so the, this is not the first. This is why I'm a little bit of a, of a naysayer. And I want to go ahead and give this, uh, this, I want to give this uh, concept to our listener and our viewer. I, I, I view the United Nations as essentially an activist group that's not unlike Greenpeace or the Humane Society of the United States or um, uh, environmental working group and you're you know somebody's like no this is a governmental entity it's not an activist group I'm like precisely it's a state-sponsored taxpayer-funded activist organization when you look at what the united nations have done they were founded after world war ii and they they actually promoted agriculture early on because the idea was a peaceful world that is a better fed world. They were about things like healthcare, immunizations, um, clean water projects, things you could really get behind in this idealism of post-World War II. But then they kind of morphed into what I would call a self-perpetuating activist group. You know, the Environmental Protection Agency, essentially starting 50 years ago, became a self-perpetuating activist group. You're saying, oh, the EPA keeps us clean, keeps us our, our water safe. The EPA keeps themselves employed and keeps the tax dollar monies coming into their coffers. The United Nations needs to have something to that always has to have a crisis because activist organizations need a crisis. Remember, and right now we're talking about crime crisis, border crisis, uh, virus crisis. There's always got to be a crisis from any group that wants to. What do they want from the crisis? They want to exploit it for greater power and greater money. United Nations, it was uh, world peace. 
We've never had that. Not since the world, since the United Nations was invented post-World War II, we've never had one month of one year where there was not at least one war going on in the world. The United States alone has been at war more years than not since the founding of World War, uh, the founding of the United Nations. They morphed a little bit out of that as the peacekeeping force to then being the uh, perpetuator of the population crisis. United Nations was all over this about 50 years ago when books like The Population Bomb came out, Todd. They said, you know what? We're all going to die. We're all going to starve because of overpopulation. So then it became population, overpopulation, and starvation. That's not happening either. We're not overpopulating. Their numbers are completely off. They talk about one of their projections that we'll have 17 billion people by the end of this century. We're only at less than 8 billion now. So I think that then they kind of teamed up with Al Gore about 20 years ago and have taken on climate change, climate crisis, climate crisis. And it seems like every time I read one of their articles and reports, it blames agriculture. Principally, it blames more and more since 2013, the first one of theirs that I read, livestock production, which means you need to eat less meat. And there's a, there's a UN article just about like this one right here, claiming that for us to fix the climate, we're going to eat less meat. And they keep talking about meat and deforestation. And again, those things aren't even accurate in any of the major meat producing countries. Your thought? No, I, I think it really goes back and it's, it's been this way for a long time that the UN has, has been sort of anti-meat. I would say anti-agriculture in general, but specifically uh, anti-animal agriculture. Uh, I think it really goes back, can kind of be traced back to, I think it was 2006, they released a report uh, that the FAO did, which is a, a organization associated with the UN. It would be the, food, it'll be the food, food and Agricultural Organization within the United Nations. Remember, an entity as big as the UN, like all quasi-governments has multiple little bureaucracies within it. In fact, the, the group that released this, uh, this article, this, I'm sorry, this whole study is the inter, uh, what is it called? The international, uh, uh, uh entity on, on climate change is what, uh, IPCC it's called. FAO has been anti-agriculture the way you and I see it. And it's almost like they're punishing the wrong people. They always come out and talk about how industrial agriculture is harming the earth. And it's like quite contraire. Go ahead. Yep. So, so they released a report back in 2006 called Livestock's Long Shadow. And it was very critical of the, of the meat industry. Um, and it really became the basis for a lot of what you see in the anti-meat sentiment on the, the climate activists uh, from around the world. Uh, the main claim of that report, or the one that really got headlines, was that animal agriculture was responsible for more global greenhouse gas emissions than transportation, right? So there's a huge headline. Everybody looked at that and said, wow, that's shocking. You know, well, well, one of the reasons why that was so shocking is because it was completely false, okay? <laughs> so later, uh, Dr. Frank Medliner from, from UC Davis and several others came out and, and analyzed the report and basically came out and debunked everything that they said in that report. Um, you know, the, the reasons are very technical and we don't spend a lot of time getting into them. But essentially, the mistake that they made was that they overestimated the impact of agriculture using a complete life cycle analysis. And then they, they didn't perform the same type of analysis on transportation. So they overimpacted, overestimated the impact of, of animal agriculture and significantly underestimated the impact of transportation. Um, but as we know, 
you know, it gets, it's really hard to unring a bell like that. You know, that kind of gets out there. It gets repeated many, many times. And so, so Dr. Mitliner and some of the others came out and criticized them. And the, and to their credit, the, the writers of the report very quickly after they were criticized came out and said, yeah, you know, you know, you're right. We made a mistake. Um, but nobody hears about that mistake. Uh, that report still gets spread around all the time. Quotes from that report get get put out. Uh, as recently as last week, I saw somebody quoting that report. Um, you know, it's been completely debunked, but the part that got debunked is really hard to find. And and all of the uh, sharing of that uh, conclusion that was not factual is very very easy to find. And all you have to do is glo- you know, Google, you know, meat uh, impact on environment and and just look at the difference between the pro meat uh, articles that you see and the anti meat articles that you see. So you and I both, you said 2006 is the one long livestock's long shadow is that's where this one came about. Now um, they love to talk about that methane is two and a half times more damaging as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, or it stays around two and a half times longer than CO2 does or some such thing. There's a two and a half factor in there somewhere. But what you just said was 15 years ago and a study which was flawed. Uh, but again, activist organizations, had they not been called out by a, a guy at UC Davis, um, that would have perpetuated even more. As it is, we just saw it was what some dingbat like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or something in the last six months said went public and said that, you know, it's uh, a cow is more harmful to our environment than uh, a car. And, you know, then, of course, ag people said, well, here, I'm going to sleep in the garage with my cow tonight and you sleep in the garage with your car running tonight. And we'll see who, who talks about this tomorrow. Um, so boy, the point is, 15 years after that thing came out, it's still being it's still common. It's like that old thing. It's common misinformation that everybody thinks is common knowledge. Um, the U.N. has also, Todd, they, again, are very anti modern agriculture and it's such a contradictory it's such hypocrisy if you will they talk about industrial agriculture industrial agriculture well and then we talk about water and as far as greenhouse gases where are we using less resources to make meat than anywhere else in the world it's at the industrial type agricultural hog farms that you and swine Tech consulting work with right yeah, it's it's large scale production. It's it, that's where the efficiency is, and specifically large scale production in developed countries. I mean, that's where that's where you're getting the most efficient uh, production, and that's the one thing that we seem to have completely dismissed is efficiency. And efficiency is a very important factor as we consider the environmental impact. Um, and so, I mean, even if you use these these you know big numbers. Um, that the UN is putting out there, uh, the the actual impact is is fairly minimal. Now, I don't want to pretend like there's no environmental impact uh, to agriculture production or to animal agriculture production. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, agriculture, like every other human activity, virtually has an impact on on the environment, and so we have to be aware of that. Uh, one, but but the the mistake that we see people make all the time is that if we can eliminate meat production, right, then we can reduce, we can eliminate that environmental impact. Well, in the case of food production, that's not the case. You can't just decide to not eat, right? You can decide not to fly to France or you can decide, you know, to ride a bicycle to work instead of driving your car, but everybody has to eat. And so even if you replace a, a higher impact 
activity with a lower impact activity, the net of those two is not zero, right? So you're not completely eliminating that. Um, and so what we've seen is, is people think, okay, well, if I could you know, go vegan or if I could eat less meat on a regular basis, I could have a real impact. But the, the studies show that if the entire U.S. population went vegan, Okay, the entire population overnight went vegan, no animal products whatsoever, that, re, that greenhouse gas emissions would be reduced by 2.6%. You know, 2.6% is certainly not nothing, but it's not game-changing, right? It's not way, close want, to game-changing. I want you to repeat that because that is not that facts matter. We know that activism, which the UN is uh, guilty of being an activist organization, uses applies on fear. Remember, may be irreversible. And I want to talk about this, the difference between facts and, and, and fear inducing. The opening sentence of the United Nations IPCC uh, report says, it is unequivocal, is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean and land. Human induced climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. It starts off with a very, you know, it's like, you are going to die, and, and, and it's your fault. You know, it was it's very much that way. So they do that to create emotion. You just told me something that's a tremendous fact. If all 330 million Americans became vegans tomorrow, how much do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the United States? About 2.6%. And, and we know that that, you know, is not going to happen. It's not anywhere close to happening. Uh, only about 2% of the population is vegan. And, and many of those, those people will move away from being vegan yeah. uh, very quickly. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's definitely not going to happen. But on, another one that you see a lot is, well, reduce your meat consumption, and that can have a big impact. Yeah. Meatless Mondays, you've heard about that for, yeah. it seems like, decades at this point. Yeah. They, they did some research on that, too. If everybody implemented Meatless Mondays in the United States, the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions would be 0.5%. Okay, so you're talking about not even really registering. When you talk about the ranges that the IPCC report is is looking at, of course they always talk about the, the higher end estimates of the of the impact. But if you look at those ranges, that's within the the the, the error, right? So I mean that doesn't even make a measurable difference um, in environmental impact, and that's something that I think. You know, as an industry, we need to get out there is that, you know, information like that, that, look, even if you did completely reduce uh, or completely eliminate meat consumption, it's not going to have a very big impact. If you do something even more reasonable than that, like Meatless Mondays, it's still it's going to have almost no measurable impact at all. And so I think that's one of the things we need to get out there. And then I think another message we need to get out there is there are some things that we can do um, and that we are doing and that we should continue to do. Uh, to reduce the environmental impact of agriculture. So I think it's important for us to not be, you know, deniers and, and, and saying, you know, agriculture doesn't impact the environment. It clearly does. Um, I think it's a relatively small impact given the value that we add to society. Well, but that, yeah, we, we certainly do impact the environment, and we should work to reduce that impact. Yeah, so it's one of those things that if um, – if, uh, you know, doing something that's unnecessary impacts the environment, that's an easy thing to stop. Uh, agriculture, as much as anything, does impact the environment. We use the water. We use the soil. We use the sunlight. We, we've, you know, changed the infrastructure. We go out here and we, you know, cultivate ground and, and do all this kind of thing. But 
because by the way, dear listener, Todd has three big points that he thinks we should be focused on and we should be telling our customer base. And that's the big thing. And I'm not going to go this whole thing about tell your story, tell your story. I've heard enough of this, all these ag memes, tell your story. Tell your story. I'm like, people don't give a shit about your story. They care about themselves. What we should do, be telling these people is the three big points where we have a chance to, to do environmental good in agriculture. And I'm going to add to your three. You said efficiency. You said transportation. And you said food waste when we were getting ready to start recording. I'm going to add a couple of that. Before we do, I want to remind our listeners about my new venture that I have with Extreme Ag. That's Extreme Ag. Ag ExtremeAg.farm is their website. Just take the E off, ExtremeAg.farm. I'm creating video and podcast content for them. So this is a collection of six high-yielding, record-setting farmers from all over the United States of America that have teamed up to share information, do product trials, talk about best practices, business and production agriculture practices. You can learn from them. You can become a member, but you also can just check out the stuff for free. Go to Extreme Ag dot farm and then you can listen to their podcast and it's all about production agriculture uh some really cool great stuff man and i'm doing stuff in the field with them i'm talking about new products with how they're utilizing them so if you're a farmer wants to up your game check out extreme ag dot farm um okay what we we know that the un overstates the impact of agriculture on the environment in some ways and things like that methane uh, study and how cows are more you know, damaging, livestock's more damaging than the transportation sector. We're going to get to the transportation sector, but I want to point out another one. They also, I, I, every article that I've read where the UN was being quoted, they talk about deforestation. And then the, one of the articles, they show a overhead picture in Australia of a huge cattle operation running around and, you know, dust is kicking up and it's dry out there. And they're saying deforestation for livestock. Like this does not happen in the United States of America. There are more acres of trees in the United States of America today than there were a century ago. And the average American does not know that. We've put how many, 36 million acres, I think, into the CRP program, Todd, something like that, in the last, since 1985 or 86, when the CRP came out. Talk to me about that knothead Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is still carrying on about, we're eating cheeseburgers because we're deforesting. It's like, that's happening maybe in Brazil. What do you got for me? Yeah, yeah, it's happening in Brazil. And, and I think it's important to understand the difference between the Brazilian industry and the U.S. industry. I mean, we're not appealing to the same people. It's a very different product. I mean, the type of cattle that they raise in Brazil is very different because the environment's different. And and they tend to be much more uh, grass-fed uh, beef, where we tend to be uh, much more grain-fed beef here in the U.S. And so even if, you know, there's this false uh, idea that if we produce uh, less, or if we eat less beef, that it'll cascade down and it'll ultimately impact the Brazilian uh, market and reduce their uh, incentives uh, to, uh, you know, to deforest the, the rainforest or whatever it is. But I really don't think that's the case because it's such a different product. The the price profiles of imported beef compared to domestic beef are completely different. And so I really don't think you're going to see much of an impact at all. And it's certainly not going to be a direct impact. So, you know, we should certainly be working with the with uh, the Brazilians and with, the, you know, our, our counterparts around the world. It's one of the things that we do um, with Swantex is work with uh, uh, other producers in developing countries and in different countries around the world to help them improve their practice. But, you know, to 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 pass judgment on U.S. beef because of something that's happening in Brazil that's really completely independent of what's going on in the U.S. is, is you know, certainly unfair and, and definitely unreasonable. 
The United Nations activist organization that uh, singles out agriculture pretty routinely is actually singling out agriculture in what's remarkable in the third world is where a lot of these things are happening. Water, you know, utilization of water resources is usually less efficient, almost always less efficient in these developing countries. So the, the very countries that the UN is supposed to be sort of the champion for, sort of they're willing to take money uh, and, and, and aid from wealthy countries and give it to those poorer countries. But the things that they're talking about, um, deforestation and, and uh, water uh, wasting and things like this happen in those other countries. You think there's a real good story to be told from modern agriculture, from the kind of agriculture that we pr- practice here in the U.S. about transportation. You know, one of our members, Ryan Moe, a Business of Ag Success Group member, spoke uh, at one of our meetings about vertical indoor raised lettuce. And he lives in Minnesota. And, you know, if it can work out, the product was amazing and it didn't have to travel across the country. But it's my understanding that we still are more efficient and cheaper at growing lettuce in Yuma, Arizona and putting it on a truck and hauling it to Minnesota versus building a building and growing it indoors in January in Minnesota. So if we can't really make that work, how's transportation? How can we save the environment by doing less transportation, Todd? Well, one of the miracles of modern agriculture really is the, the understanding that we need to understand our land and understand our environment and be able to maximize the productivity of that resource by raising the crops that are the most that can be the most efficiently grown in that area. You know, that's the reason why we don't have citrus farms in Minnesota. And that's the reason why we don't have cotton farms in in uh, in Florida. You know, there, there's and that certainly applies. Uh, globally, and so that has allowed us uh, to really provide a, 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 a lot more variation in our diets, which is good for us, good for our health, and do that in a very efficient way by growing those crops in the areas that they can be most efficiently grown in. Um, but obviously, that requires transportation. Now, a lot of times, there's you know this sort of this myth of local production being better for the environment. Um, but, it, but it really is a myth because a lot of times that transportation, while it does have an environmental impact, doesn't offset the differences in efficiency. So I think consumers very much underestimate the impact of efficiency uh, in production. And, and, and they think, okay, well, if I'm growing uh, potatoes here and I'm transporting them a thousand miles, you know, they go on a truck and that's a thousand miles of a truck burning diesel fuel. You know, yeah. that can be good for the environment. But what they're, they're overestimating the impact of that truck because that truck is relatively efficient because you can put a lot of potatoes on a semi sure. and, and they're, they're underestimating the difference in the efficiency of growing potatoes in an area that are conducive to growing potatoes and growing them potatoes in an area that are not conducive. To growing potatoes. Yeah. So uh, um, potato, potato people have been a client of mine and I, they used a number once they said something along the lines of you can get 30 tons of potatoes per acre in some of this amazing Idaho uh, lava potato soils. You know, 60,000 pounds, right? It's an amazing amount. Um, I think, in fact, I think that's about, uh, I think that's about what a trailer can haul. So let's say like every acre gives you like a semi-trailer full of uh, potatoes or something like this. It's an amazing amount of potatoes. Um, I can grow potatoes here. I got them in my garden, but I can't grow them like that. And so like you're pointing out here, if we took the alfalfa field behind my house and put it into potatoes, we can grow some potatoes, but are we going to be, are we going to be able to grow enough to offset like you said, um, the, generally the answer is the transportation still actually 
is a more efficient use of the resource because of maximizing its productivity where you can produce something the most. Are we going to get better at the transportation thing? Uh, I think so. There's a big focus on transportation. And I think in agriculture, we should encourage that a development of those green transportation methods, you know, and I think so that's an important thing. Obviously, you know, they're working on the electric cars and, and, you know, those have got issues with uh, producing batteries and, and, you know, plugging into uh, coal-fired power plants to charge your uh, supposedly green electric car. But there's definitely a lot of money and a lot of focus going in that direction. And we should encourage that because we will benefit from that from a transportation standpoint. And we'll also benefit from that, you know, we, we use tractors and we use, uh, you know, pickups and, and semi-trucks and combines and all those things. If we could, if we could uh, you know, have a, a energy source to, to power those, that equipment that we use in modern agriculture, um, in a way that had, you know, zero or very limited environmental impact, that would be a, a huge win for us. And so that's the reason why, you know, it seems like maybe green transportation might not be an obvious item for me to put in my top three things we could be focusing on uh, right now. But I think there's a lot of energy behind that. There's a lot of momentum behind that because transportation in the more general sense is such a big factor in in uh, greenhouse gas emissions. There's a lot of leverage behind that. And we should put some additional leverage behind that from an agriculture perspective because it could be a, a, a realistic uh, major benefit to us and allow us to continue to capture those advantages of those efficiencies of growing crops in areas where it makes most sense to grow them without having, you know, without even having to consider the, the offset of having to transport those uh, products, you know, relatively long distance. Yeah, the transportation, we know that it does, you know, burn up some, some resources, but let's just talk about one of our, since you and I both are meat eaters, we're not part of that vegan uh, minority that you talked about. <clears throat> you produce these, uh, you produce these uh, hogs, and, um, you know, here in Indiana, we're pretty good. We got like five process, three part processing plants within, uh, 80 miles of my farm, uh, 50 miles of my farm, I think. Um, anyway, that's cool. That means if you're a hog farmer, these hogs aren't going very far, but we do transport live animals on the hoof a very, very long way. It's more efficient than driving them to market. Like we used to, where you just get on a horse and walk for the next month and, uh, and try and take them somewhere. Are we going to get smaller, more regional meat processors, which is something that's been talked about a lot with this whole breaking up the big five meat companies, because then you all of a sudden, like, you're not transporting those steers from here to Dodge City, Kansas. Is that something that's going to happen on the transportation thing, or is that just still a spit in the wind? I think there's going to be some move in that direction. But again, I think it gets back to that efficiency. I mean, the, the, the problem with small farms is that they just aren't efficient. And it's not that they necessarily have to be inefficient, but they are. Yeah. You know, everywhere I go, I've traveled all over the world, and smaller farms are inefficient. And they're inefficient for a lot of reasons, and they're inefficient for reasons that aren't, you know, necessarily the fault of these, you know, small-scale producers, but they just are. And so you see uh, an opportunity, I think, for a sort of a niche production. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. But in terms of stepping back and looking at, you know, feeding the global population at scale, you know, I don't think that's the solution. I think I think that's going to be a, a very strong niche as people get richer and more interested in understanding where their food comes from. I think there's a big opportunity for producers in that area. But as we step back and look at it from a bigger picture standpoint, I don't think you're going to feed the world that way. I think you're going to feed the world with, with modern, highly efficient, large-scale production. 
All right. One big thing that you and I both agree on, uh, the United Nations can go out there and, and, and basically, like I said, I think that much of their stuff resembles activist claims, activist uh, methodology. They do a lot of the same stuff that the Humane Society or the Environmental Working Group or Greenpeace does. Salacious headlines. Um, they love to talk about uh, experts agree. You know, all of the reports are talking about, well, we brought together these 19 experts. Well, those 19 experts oftentimes have a vested interest in agreeing with the other 18 experts because that's where the money keeps coming from, from a UN grant. But they love to single out agriculture. And you and I both think that there's a real opportunity for agriculture. And, and I've said this to my audience for a number of years. We need to publicize and be more outspoken against food waste. You want to change instead of instead of harping on all the stuff that's not even real deforestation is not even happening in places like the United States. Um, you know, water utilization. We're doing all this a tremendous amount of efficiency of resources. But you really want to make a difference. You want to make a dent in this whole climate change issue. And as ag's perspective, stop wasting all of our damn food. We waste thirty five percent of what we produce. Give it to me. Yeah, so depending on, on where you look at it, almost everybody agrees that we waste globally somewhere between one-third and one-half of all the food we produce. So that means from a seed that goes into the ground or an animal that's uh, born on a farm, uh, one-third to one-half of that never ends up resulting in, in actual food that's consumed by a human being. Um, and so, I mean, that represents a huge opportunity. I think we have to understand that the nature of that issue is different depending on where you're at in the world. In more developed countries and first world countries, that tends to happen at the consumer and the retail level. So we're talking about individual wastage, people not, you know, ordering more food at a restaurant than they eat and just throw it away, uh, restaurant wastage, grocery wastage. Uh, we're talking about that at more of an individual level. In developing countries, you don't tend to see that as much because uh, they have less money and uh, they place more value on the food that they're able to procure. And so they tend to waste it at much uh, lower levels. And so that's great. But developing countries have real issues around wastage on the production side. And so on production and storage at the industrial level, we have issues there because they don't have technology. They don't have you know experience in managing those issues. And so we see things like full bins of soybeans ruined because they are improperly managed. And uh, we see crops that end up you know rotting in the field because they're not able to get out there and get it harvested um, in time. And so you see some of those things. And so you know what we're seeing and when we say the global issue with food waste is it's a combination of of some of those more industrial things directly related to agriculture, and then a lot of personal responsibility type things in, in developed countries. But, um, I mean, this is a huge opportunity, and it's really one that everybody ought to be able to agree on. It's a huge opportunity. It is, uh, if, if food wastage was a country, it would be the third biggest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in the world behind the U.S. and China. You know, and so if we were able to... State that, by the way, I cover food waste in my book, Food Fear. Dear viewer and listener, if you have not picked up your copy of Food Fear, it's about the past, present, future of agriculture. And page 195, I talk about food waste. As Todd points out, in the developing world, it's because they don't have highways or infrastructure to store or transport the product. So soybeans might just get rained out and rotted in a field, um, or, or they might have a product that then is not refrigerated, and so therefore it spoils. In developed countries that are wealthy like us, food so cheap, we don't mind wasting it. You know, it's so cheap. It's so expensive. Hey, do you want your leftovers? No, throw them away. 
what the hell? I only spend 6.4% of my income on food in the United States, as opposed to 55% of my income if I'm in Nigeria, waste it. So yeah, we're wasting it in two different uh, capacity, two different methodologies, if you will, to food waste, but it's all a terrible problem. That number you just said is something that we should tell everybody every day in agriculture. Yep. Give it, give me yep. those numbers again. If food waste was its own country, it would... It would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world behind the U.S. and China. So, um, I mean, it's a it's a it's a major a major issue. We're probably I mean, you're never going to be able to completely eliminate food waste. Right. But if we could cut food waste in half, which I think is a very reasonable target globally, um, if we could we could achieve that, we're talking about a very significant reduction in environmental impact and we're talking about doing that without anybody having to change their their uh their diet we're talking about doing that without any reduction in food production um you know and so there's really uh, there's really no downside to that everybody benefits now obviously if you're talking about you know if you did that overnight you would have some adjustments and it would be bad for some producers in some areas but you know really that's something that I think we have to embrace as an industry and engage with people on because that's some common ground that I think we have, I mean, everybody realizes the the, the obvious opportunity there um, of reducing food waste. So I think it's something we ought to embrace as an industry and, and pursue heavily. And that's why I put it in my top three issues. I agree. The the My farmer brother was out here having beers six or 10 years ago. Uh, he's no longer with us, but uh, we're talking about nursing homes. And my uh, buddy said, yeah, unfortunately, you know, grandma's in a nursing home. It's ridiculous. They just bring a plate of food in there and this old woman lays there and has no idea. And then next thing you know, the food uh, gets thrown away. My brother, the farmer said, hey, man, I'm a farmer. Uh, I guess uh, as, long as, they, <laughs> as long as they keep bringing the food in there, it's good for me. We do have this concept in ag. Well, I'd rather they keep buying it and throwing it away. At least they're buying my stuff. But that's kind of a short-sighted, a short-sighted uh, uh, way to look at things because – uh, yeah, you're selling the product that's getting thrown in the garbage disposal, but or filling the landfill. But eventually, it's going to come back to us as an industry being viewed as the evil, you know, like tobacco or something like that. Uh, and, and you know, oh well, I don't care if this is socially bad as long as it's good for my pocketbook. And I think that would be a problem. Well, and we, and we talked about before. I mentioned, you know, one of the mistakes that people make a lot of times is saying, okay, well, animal agriculture contributes fourteen and a half percent of all emissions. Well, they don't, but you know, let's let's use, use their number. Then, if we could quit eating meat, then we could eliminate fourteen and a half percent of our emissions. Well, no, yeah, you still have to eat something. You have to go replace that with something else, and that also has an environmental impact. And depending on what you replace it with, it might have almost as much environmental impact as the meat that you got rid of, right? And so, you know, it, that's, that's, you know, something that we have to consider, but in food waste, we don't have to consider that. If yeah, we we've, already produced, food we waste, have, we, we've already produced the stuff and, you know, the whole thing about feed the world, you and I tell everybody we produce enough food that there shouldn't, that there wouldn't have to be any starving humans on earth. There's about 800 million starving on, on planet earth right now. They wouldn't have to be, we've got the product. We just don't have the economics and the distribution. So we're already, if you're throwing away a third of what you make, you know, we're making enough for 700 uh, million. We're feeding 700 million, 7 billion, and we're making enough for about 9 billion. Right. So um, we've, we've got the product. What about um, what about the uh, the other aspect of this that, um, you know, from an environmental standpoint, the stuff that you and I both say, all right, these are some real opportunities. And instead of the U.N. bashing on us, they come out with one of the reports that said, 
Agriculture is responsible for 23% of all greenhouse gas emissions. They're, they're paying us at one-fourth of all greenhouse gas emissions. You and I have already pointed out many of this; these numbers are flawed. But even if you said, okay, they love to harp on meat. Okay, now I'm going to grow. I'm going to eat only Beyond Burgers. Well, Beyond Burgers are, they're bringing in, uh, uh, what is it, palm oil from the Indonesia, which does not have a very good environmental record. So you're shipping that across the Pacific Ocean from Indonesia to a place in the United States that makes it with um, some, some bean and, and pea protein that is grown. So it's still farmed with diesel tractors and, and has all those things. What do you suppose the actual... We suppose the, if, if we went, uh, you know, no meat um, just in that regard, you know, you said 2.6% if we became vegan, there still is a shitload of greenhouse gas emissions that happen to produce plant stuff. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that that's just one of the mistakes that is made. And I think the more that we're learning about how to measure these things um, accurately, uh, the more we're understanding that animal agriculture is starting to look better and better. Um, relative to the other ways that we have to raise food right now. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, you know, I think it's another thing that I, that I think we need to be really careful about. A lot of the activists want to come out and say that this is all settled science. This is all, you know, everybody knows. And I had an old professor that said if, that told me that if somebody tells you it's settled science, it's almost certainly not uh, settled and it's definitely not science. Okay. So, you know, I think we need to be a little more, uh, aware of the fact that there's still a lot of this stuff that we don't understand. We're learning every day more and more about this. And as we talk about methane, you know, methane was the big bugaboo for a long time. But the more information that comes out about methane is, yes, it is more uh, intensive in terms of a greenhouse gas, but it goes away in a relatively short period of time. It doesn't stay in the atmosphere for thousands of years. And so the overall environmental impact is is relatively less than it would be for say CO2. So, um, you know, that's not my area of expertise, but if you dig into the, the science there, that's starting to look a lot more friendly towards animal agriculture. I um, mean, and I think we just need to be really uh, aware of what that looks like. And I think the other thing that we need to be aware of is the variations depending on uh, the, the type of product you're looking at. You know, grass-fed beef and grain-fed beef have a very different profile. Uh, pigs that are raised in China have a very different profile than pigs that are raised in the U.S. Um, you know, the, the U.N. And, and, and the ironic thing is a lot of times you can debunk the U.N. by using their own numbers because that's one advantage that they have is they can collect data and their data is reasonably is a lot of times reasonably accurate. It's the it's the interpretation of the data that gets us in trouble. Right. Um, but the UN says livestock produces 7.1 gigatons of CO2 equivalent a year. Uh, so that's about 14 and a half percent of all human caused emissions. So 7.1 gigatons of CO2 equivalent uh, is about 14 and a half percent of human caused emissions. But according to the same source, North America produces only 0.6 gigatons which is about 1.2% of the total. But if you look at Latin America, Southeast Asia, each are over one gigaton, okay? So there's a lot of reasons for that. There's population differences. There's relative popularity of commodities. They eat more beef in South America than they do uh, other products. They eat more pork in Asia than we do in North America. Um, So there's lots of explanations, but one of those is efficiency, and a big one of those is efficiency. So I, I collected a little bit of some numbers here to kind of supplement my knowledge on the on the swine industry. It takes about five cows in Mexico to produce the same milk as one cow in the U.S. 
Okay, so it takes five times as many cows to produce the same gallon of milk in Mexico compared to the U.S. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not an expert on dairy, but uh, you know, I have uh, people that do what I do on the slant side on dairy that can explain to you exactly what those differences are. In India, it's 20. It takes 20 cows in India produce the same amount of milk that that we can produce with one cow in the U.S. Now, obviously. India cows is a very unique situation, um, you know, and so there's a lot of things to consider there. But we see similar numbers on the beef side. Um, we uh, we see similar numbers on the pork side. We've estimated, my company's estimated, that if China could get up to an international standard, so an average, you know, where their average producer was producing about the same as an average producer in the developed, you know, mature market world, so no. North America and, and Europe, uh, they could reduce their herd by about 20% and produce the same amount of pork, or they could produce 20% more pork with the same resources that they have available. Um, and, and we know that these improvements are possible because we've already made them in other parts of the world. Yes. You know, in the U.S., in 1970, in the U.S., there were 12 million dairy cows. But today, there are about 9 million dairy cows, and we produce twice as much milk. So we're producing twice as much milk with 9 million dairy cows as we did with 12 million dairy cows 50 years ago. In the early 90s, in the U.S., there was about 6.8 million cows. Okay, So in the early 90s, I think in 95, it would have been about 6.8 million cows. Today, there's only about 6.4 million cows. So basically the same number of cows, slightly fewer cows, 400,000 less cows in the U.S. today than there was um, uh, back in 1995, but we produce almost a little more than twice as much pork. Okay? So the same, so we basically have the same number of cows, but twice as much pork. Decrease the mama pigs by uh, by yeah, what four or five percent there? Let's say six percent, something like that, and uh, and the and increase the meat pork production by double. So the point is. You and I are giving information that all of our ag listeners and viewers can share this around and say, when you in comes out, because I'm tired of reading the crap because it's always the same story. It'll always talk about and the influence of livestock production and these industrial agriculture. And what's really remarkable is they also tend to be against a lot of things that happen. You know, these third world countries that the UN is supposed to be the champion for and generally does wealth redistribution from wealthy countries to those poor countries. Um, you've got some land that has no value. It could not do anything. As you said at the top of the whole show, they've got land and, and, and poorer countries that have, you, you can't grow a crop. The best thing you can do is throw some goats out there and then you can eat the goat meat. Goats can take any growing vegetation at all and turn it into protein that then a person can eat. So it's almost like uh, the UN, um, you know, it's perpetuating a crisis and uh, not always, like you said, they've got data, but then sometimes they like to articulate in a way that makes them the, uh, the, 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 the crisis recipient of the crisis uh, benefit, if you will. Another thing you just pointed out there was when they try and talk about what happens, we're not comparing apples to apples. One U S milk cow equals five cows in Mexico. So who's doing a better job by the environment? Clearly the American dairy farmer, the American hog farmer, the American farmer in general. Closing thoughts here, the United Nations as environmental activists, because I said they've always got to have a crisis. It's been population, starvation, war, and now it's climate change, climate change, climate change. And it's transit. They do. They do talk a lot about uh, transportation in here. And this was the first one that wasn't as anti-agriculture. And I read three different sources, uh, CNBC, um, uh, another publication in the Wall Street Journal. What are your thoughts on this? What do we got to do? 
I think we're I think we're making progress. It's it's really slow, but I think we're making progress. You're starting to see some some concessions on some of the people that have been really anti agriculture or definitely anti meat. Uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates, for example, a <gasps> big anti meat person. Uh, you know, probably eats steak for dinner every night, but but he wants you to eat less meat, right? Well, one of the things that was a little, kind of a subtle change in some of his recent recommendations was he said in the developed world we need to eat less meat. So that's a recognition of kind of what you were alluding to earlier, that in some of these developing countries, livestock is a critical part of their ability to, you know, feed themselves because they don't have some of the same resources that we have. You know, they can't they can't grow lettuce and kale and, and corn and soybeans and stuff like that. They they have very limited resources. There's not a lot they can do with that. But what we call marginal land. Here, you know, it's very marginal land a lot of, in a lot of times in, in places like Africa and some parts of, of uh, Latin America. So, um, so there's some recognition, um, some subtlety being added into this. And I think we just need to keep, need to keep hammering on the message. And, and I think we need to do that in the context of saying, look, we do have an impact. We're working to reduce our impact, but our impact, there's no reason we should be such a target because our impact is relatively small compared to these other areas and compared to the social value that we're contributing to society by providing nutritious food uh, for people to eat. Um, you know, you need to cut us some slack. We're working really hard on it. Um, and I think the message needs to be, you know, you, you need to be more fair to us, but we are, you know, have some opportunities to improve, and here are some areas where we're really working on improving, and we think we can have a big impact. So I think it's really important that we're not just negative and saying, look, all of this is a bunch of crap. A lot of it is a bunch of crap, you know, but, you know, that message doesn't doesn't get uh, across as smoothly to, skeptic, to skeptics as it is if, if you admit yeah, we do have an impact. We are making progress. We need to continue to make progress. And here's a few areas I think we ought to work on. You know, right. I think that's a much more positive message uh, that helps present our industry in a more positive light and is a lot more likely to con- convince uh, people outside of agriculture to be a little more friendly to our, towards our efforts um, okay. in the agriculture industry. Are you okay if I still badmouth the United Nations and call it uh, an activist group? Yeah, you, you're free to. His name is Todd Thurman. My name is Damian Mason. This is the Business of Agriculture podcast. You've got great sponsors like Land Trust. You heard their announcement uh, at the beginning of this show, uh, and so you should check them out. I also want to remind you that the Business of Agriculture Success Group is a group that we founded, me and Todd, and we get together. It's on a Zoom call, and it's very easy. It's a network for agricultural professionals where we get together with guest presenters. We talk about topics, and we bring in all sorts of current pertinent information and give our take on it. And it's information sharing. So if you could benefit, if your career and your business could benefit by being a part of this, go to my website and sign up for it or just send me a message. I'll figure out how to get you there. It's the Business of Ag Success Group with me and Todd Thurman, where you hear intelligent discussion. Not so much for me, because let's face it, ask his mom. He's the brains behind all this. I'm just a former comedian with a, a big ego. All right. His name's Todd Thurman. Thanks for being here, buddy. Thanks a lot for having me. Always a pleasure. All right. Till next time, it's the Business of Agriculture. Thank you for tuning into the Business of Agriculture podcast, sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust partners with farmers and ranchers to capture pure profit from sportsmen seeking new experiences and places to hunt and fish. Land Trust built the platform and does the marketing. You maintain 100% control of access and activities, and you set the rules. 
There's no cost or obligation when you list, and the next 10 Business of Agriculture listeners who go to landtrust.com slash BOA are eligible for a gift worth over $2,000. 